Hello and welcome to BWB Extra, where we continue our very special conversation with Martin Wolf, Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times. We dig deeper and discuss modern monetary theory, the effects of the energy crisis on the economy, and what SMEs should be doing to prepare, and ask, what are the UK's alternatives to the EU? Can Britain become a global superpower again? And what does the future of UK politics look like? Okay, buckle up, folks. Here we go. What do you think about modern monetary theory? Well, what I've said before is what is true isn't new and what is new isn't true. Let me just explain what I mean. It's always been true that the government can create money and it can create money to fund itself. And it does, by the way, uh, in concealed ways, uh, because there's an increased demand for money in our economy over time. And... The government can provide some of this through the interaction between the central bank and the banking system, and that's what is called seniorage. Okay, so there's there's no doubt that monetary financing not only is possible; it happens, and in certain times, it happens rather on rather a large scale. So, in that sense, it's not new, and it is true. Uh, in a in a fiat money system like ours, not backed by gold, which and it hasn't been. Is that what fiat means? It means not backed by gold. Well, fiat means yeah. Well, basically, it's not backed by anything. Uh, it means that the government can create this thing, this digital thing. Now based it used to be trust. based on trust, and its value is determined by the issuing authority, namely the central bank, and how it manages monetary policy. There's nothing you can change it. You can't convert it into something else because you don't trust it at some par. In the old days, back in the 19th century, you know, there was an amount of gold which was equivalent to the, the pound. And if you wanted to, you can go and get it from the Bank of England in return for their banknotes. Now, it's obviously long since gone. Just look at what a banknote says. It promises to pay the bearer the sum of one pound. What does that mean? Uh, so, we moved to a fiat money system fully when we went off gold in the early 30s. So we've been there 90 years. And before that, really and truly, the pre-First World War gold standard was never fully restored. It was a very brief period between 25 and 32, if I remember correctly. So that's the system. It's a, it's a fiat money system. And since there's an dem- increased demand for money, the government can choose, depending on how it manages the system, I won't go into the details, about how much of the gain in public finance terms it gets from that. But it doesn't mean that as long as the economy is deemed to be not operating at full capacity as the government decided, you can just keep printing money and it doesn't matter because you're not operating beyond full capacity in the economy. The problem with that is if people really don't have confidence in the future of this money, they can just ditch it. The global economy now. Well, domestic citizens, can, they can ditch it into goods and services domestically, generates domestic inflation, or they can ditch it internationally, if that's more likely, and that generates an, a run and fall on the currency. Now, in theory, the MMT people could say, well, that will start generating because we've got this huge devaluation, full employment, over full employment, inflation, and therefore you should stop. The problem with that is the connection between currency flight or flight from money and the way the real economy will work is quite complicated and doesn't particularly work in that way. You could easily generate inflation when the economy is collapsing. 
That's what happens in a hyperinflation. I'm not talking about that's just an extreme yeah, yeah. case. So there isn't any clear link. It's not a really clear link between monetary policy, full employment, and uh, domestic demand and price stability. So the uh, the result is when you're doing monetary policy, you inevitably have to think about the confidence people have in your currency and in its future value if you want to do the monetary policy in a way that stabilizes the economy. And that could well mean, in certain circumstances, for instance, when inflation is going up temporarily, that you have to tighten monetary policy, even though people will point out, well, you've still got some slack in the economy. Because slack in the economy is something you don't really know. Yeah. You can't you can't register it easily. So my view is you use monetary and fiscal policy in order to get the highest level of activity you can. So you do stabilize the economy if you can. And often that means if you've got people have got confidence in the long run stability of your operation, of the way you're doing it, that you can borrow a lot of money print a lot of money, as you could clearly after the financial crisis. That was a situation which is absolutely clear. You, I won't go through all the mechanisms that made that clear. But today, it wouldn't work because I think it would just lead to, to a run, uh, a big run. Especially now. Right now. So in practice, achieving full employment in our economy in the short run is not going to be feasible with monetary and fiscal policy. We are going to have a recession and we are going to slow down. It's really important, impossible to avoid that. But if we preserve credibility throughout this process, we can probably get back to full employment more quickly. I mean, employment hasn't been lower in ages. Unemployment is very low and it's going to rise because we're going to have to make sure that this inflation we're getting is not going to create a really big wage price spiral. And that's what they're going to tighten for. It may not need to be a lot. We don't know yet. That's a complicated picture. But you can't just say, well, we will be right, and unemployment will be rising, which it will, and therefore demand is insufficient, which in a sense it will, and therefore the obvious thing to do is just go out there and spend more money. Because in this situation, that's just going to make the crisis worse. I think I agree with this, the principle. I know, Pop, you have feelings on this. It's a really a tough point. Is You've been sort of saying, we kind of need a recession, like a real one, because of all the things you're talking about in terms of wage inflation, but also just a deeper thing that, you know, it sharpens the mind, shall we say. Or Well, you always want to try and get to me to the point where labour's in balance with the demand. The employers have got their position and the unions have got theirs, but they're both have to respect each other whenever it goes too strong one way or the other. If you get mass un- unemployment, that's dreadful. And if you get too little, then, you know, I lived in Slough, which ended up for years just with no unemployment and everybody just moved jobs and it was very inefficient, really. It was not a, a happy place. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty we have now are two come together. Well, first of all, with the legacy of COVID, but I'm going to put that to one side. The big problem is... We have a a very large negative terms of trade shock. That is to say, we are really poorer than we used to be because imports have become much more expensive relative to our exports than they were before. And this is a loss probably of national income. Maybe the most recent numbers are about 4%. This is Brexit slightly? No, it's nothing to do with Brexit. It is almost nothing. It's almost entirely to do with the energy crisis, the 
It's this massive rise in the price of oil and gas, which is also, of course, which means we have to spend all this money to buy this stuff, which we use not to, and that means we're poorer. I mean, as a country, all adding us all up together, because we don't produce the energy we consume, we're going to spend a lot of resources abroad, and uh, uh, which we didn't before. We're going to send a lot of income abroad, if you like, to Russia and Saudi Arabia and all the rest of it. Um, that's unavoidable. And we can't get that. There's nothing we can do domestically to get that back in the short run. Mm. We can borrow more, um, but borrowing even more than we've already done runs into this credit con- issue, which we talked about earlier on the balance payments, means an even bigger balance of payments deficit. It will be bigger, but there's a limit. And this, of course, is itself recessionary because a lot of our income that might have gone to buy goods and services here are now going abroad. So we, we, that all on its own will cause tend to cause a recession because a lot of our income is it's like paying taxes, if you like, to Russians instead of to the British government, which will spend it here. But can we offset that by increased domestic spending? The problem is this is generating a massive inflation spike at the same time And the concern is that, quite understandably, labor and so forth doesn't want the reduction in their real incomes, which comes from the rise in the foreign price level and the the rise in the domestic price level that is the consequence of the fact that lots of firms now have much higher costs than they used to, so they're raising their prices. Energy prices are an input for everybody. So every firm has to raise prices. And that means that wages are falling because of this external shock and the domestic rise in the domestic price level. Now, you want real wages not to fall too much. That's clear. But they're going to have to fall a little because we're poorer. So to stop the what is called second and tertiary round effects of this generalized rise in import prices. This is experience we had in the 70s. We haven't had anything like that since then. You have to tighten the economy enough to weaken the labor market enough that the essentially some reductions in real wages do occur. They're not fully offset through um, wage bargaining so that the real wages don't fall at all. They have to fall a bit. Now, this is what essentially they're trying to do because otherwise we get inflation sort of gets stuck at 10%, not at 10%, probably 6 And we don't want to stay at 6 because that's a very problematic level from which to, to stabilise that. And that means that we're going to get a slowdown, which will look be a recession, in fact, to prevent a part of the losses, the external losses from becoming a spiral and part of the domestic price rise, uh, which is a consequence of the external shock, from contributing to that spiral. That's essentially what they're trying to do so that in the end, inflation falls back to 2% pretty quickly. Then we can go back to normal, ideally 2024, I hope we'll see. And that will mean that there will have to be a recession because if wages go up 6 7%, let's say, then we're not going to get to back to 2% inflation. We've got to stop that happening. 
Yeah, is it fair to say, therefore, that, you know, okay, so the, the there's a recession coming in, in terms of that. What should an SME be doing about things? Is there anything, you know, they, they should or shouldn't be doing? They are going to be mostly badly squeezed because the energy costs are rising. Uh, there's no question. Their wage costs will quite certainly be rising because they can't not buy substantially. And the government is tightening monetary policy and not fiscal policy, but it's tightening monetary policy. The central bank is tightening monetary policy and demand will be weakening. And as in most recessions, some firms will disappear. I mean, I feel it's like, it's it's sort of the problem of uh, customs unions and stuff again. I feel you've got to sort of look abroad for markets. And I I try and raise this. I don't know if you've ever heard of Kanzuk, but like none of my contemporaries give a shit about the Commonwealth, as far as I can work out. I happen to have a wife from Trinidad. I work a lot with Australians, Americans, Kiwis, you know. And I've met old, you meet an old Australian who's old enough to remember 1973. I've watched a guy go red with anger with me and what we did to their economy. So look, Brexit, whatever you feel about Brexit, certainly from an economic position, not having that market is an issue. But I find so difficult. There's no conversation about, you know, there is in Canada, you know, Kanzuk, the idea that Canada, Australia, New Zealand, at least, you know, join them all together, have free movement and look to other markets. It seems very, um, I don't know, there doesn't seem to be any real interest in it in this country. Everyone's sort of, you know, let's rejoin Europe and I'm a European, screw the Commonwealth, you know. Well, First of all, I think there are so many different aspects of that. If you add these economies together, they're not big enough to offer us significant markets. But talent and free movement of people. So, well, we can open free movement of people to them. We could always have done. I mean, we never needed to have any restrictions on that. Uh, The the, um, restrictions we imposed on Commonwealth immigrants... (laughs) Um, you would include w- India in that? Well, well the, I think it would be quite difficult. I'm not, no, I, I wouldn't. But I, I personally wouldn't support a policy which said, okay, we're going to have free movement with the white dominions and not with other members of the Commonwealth. I, I, w- I would not accept that. But that would be the politics of it, and I, I, I wouldn't accept it. So, uh, but as an economic union, um, this is not... Uh, quantitatively relevant for th- for the UK, particularly as it is now. It was more relevant when we were an exporter of manufacturers, self-sufficient in manufacturers, well competitive, and imported raw materials because these countries were prime exporters of raw materials. But once you're part of an industrial integrated supply chain system because your market just isn't big enough to... We're talking about global markets now... Um, then you need, for industry at least, you can't just do that exchange. You need places which are close to you, very efficient for you to supply and vice versa, and with a market which is world-scale, and the EU does have that. And So we have a completely different economy from what we had 100 years ago. This is a really important point. But the other point, which is a bigger one, is if we wanted to go global like that, if we wanted to find an alternative to the EU, Mm. it would have to be based around America. Mm. Uh, That was to say we wouldn't want, at the very least, free trade area with America. There's no chance of a free trade area with America for the foreseeable future. It's not going to, it's not interested in this. I may be wrong, 
Even then, it's still, if you add all these countries together in trading terms, they're still half of what the EU is. So the, the, our economy is different, trade is different, uh, and trading opportunities are different. The, the final point you made, so I'm just looking at the present, yeah. it, when we decided to go in, we did end up betraying not Canada really, it wasn't important for them, but, but New Zealand and Australia that had built their farm sectors particularly, which were very important to them, round, around supplying the British market. Mm. And it was a very big shock to them and it wasn't handled particularly well and, and uh, the, ab- the abandonment of the Commonwealth in that sense was very controversial at the time. But there are two points to be made about where we are now. That's half a century ago. Their economies have adjusted completely. They found lots of wonderful new markets, mostly in Asia, particularly China. They have become much richer, particularly Australia, over the period. And they they would have to say, and lots of Australian, New Zealand friends, but in the end, it worked out pretty well for them because they got to a natural trade pattern. But having this link, this link in which they supply this stuff to Britain, all this where we're a small country with a with a stagnant market, clearly they want to be selling this stuff into Asia, which is vast and has limitless demand for what they produce. So that's ancient history. That's not where they're going to go back to. They're not going to go back to the, this Commonwealth structure. Just really ask them. Yeah, they're very happy with our deal, but it's not going to change. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, the exports we're going to generate from this will be trivial. Yeah, yeah. Um, Australia's 25 million people. It's, 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 a, it's not much bigger than the Netherlands. I mean, really, it's important to understand that. So there is a, we did make this strategic decision that in the world from 1970 onwards, we were no longer imperial power. The empire wouldn't function economically as it did before, the, which is correct, by the way, particularly not the biggest part, India. And we were moving into a world where a lot of trade was developing within large contiguous markets, continental markets, basically. We'll look at what are the dominant economies of the world today? The US, China, and the EU. They're very different. I'm not too, but what they share is their continental scale markets. And there is nothing outside that which offers that pattern. So if we want to develop, we're going to, we, it means it comes back to our earlier point that some of the sort of industry we tried to develop in the 80s that which were all linked into supply chains across Europe, they're going to go. And I'm not sure we're going to find something that easily replaces them. And it won't be the US. We're not going to get into a supply chain relationship with the US. I feel like it's like the door ahead of it or the door behind us now, you know, the EU door. It's like I can't fight. So it's like at least there's another door, you know. I mean, in this sense, I I think most of the discussion of Singapore on Thames is nuts. But... If you think that we're not going to go back into the customs union or the single market, which let's assume for the moment we won't, then basically we have to be an offshore entrepreneur economy for the world. And therefore we have to be in the things where 
trade barriers are very difficult to, to put up, where we have very strong comparative advantage, which we can trade globally easily. The beautiful th- things that when you uh, put them on the internet, so manage, there are lots of services. We're very, very good at business services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can put them on the internet. You can do legal services, all this stuff. That's worldwide. You could, you could finance is the same. Media. Media is the same. Creative things are the same. Life sciences stuff, it's basically just ideas. You're just generating patent ideas. People with brains and creativity creating often quite small businesses, sometimes larger ones, very high-value products, you know... You, if you're producing aero engines, let's assume you're successful, yeah. they go into planes, trading them is not an issue. Um, they're very, very valuable. The, the tra- they can be transported in an aeroplane, on an aeroplane, as it were, and the problem disappears. You don't need a trade system. If you're a, a frontier producer of military equipment, again, it's government-to-government purchases. You don't need a trading area. If you're competitive with the Americans in certain areas, you're going to be you're going to be in that business. You're out of certain activities, providing parts to motor vehicle manufacturers. You're out of that. Yeah. So you end up with a different economy. We could have done that anyway, in my view. So we've lost something. This new economy, we could have had it anyway. None of this was opposed by, indeed, almost none of the really big economic problems we've discussed in Britain could not have been solved within the EU. There were very few problems that were directly relevant to it, related to it. But yes, we could do this. What worries me about that pattern of development is for a country of, like Singapore, a few million. Being an entrepreneur entity for the world works very, very well. For a country of 50, well, say 68 million or whatever it is, it's really hard to see what are the whole range of things that will employ all our people. As such, I can't think of an economy at that scale which operates essentially on these sectors uh, alone. London could. I could imagine this will be a very profitable future for London and the Southeast. I'm not clear in my mind at all on how you provide better jobs, new jobs, new incomes, and so forth for the whole of Britain from this sort of activity, even if you accept that a lot of the incomes people will earn will be selling to the people who are exporting all this stuff, particularly if all those people are in London and the services you're sending to them are local, in which case you need to be be there. And that comes back to my our earlier discussion. Well, the growth strategy for Britain is to move everybody into London and the southeast in one, th- one city of 40 million people. The point is, once we left the EU, if we assumed that the trading opportunities we thought were, would come from the single market mm-hmm. and the customer are gone, that I think has a quite a big effect on the future growth strategy and the future growth prospect. It forces us back to a different sorts of comparative advantage. And those will play very well into some of our strengths, a lot of which are located in the richest part of our country, which I expect to continue to do well. Let's be screwed up completely. We allow in top-class people from the world into our top universities, Oxford, Cambridge, the London universities, and uh, and uh, all the industries that London is strong in. But what is not clear to me is how this creates a growth strategy for the whole country. 
Do you think we could find that door? You could do because it did allow us to, though in a different way, to recreate some very real industrial strength which built up certain areas. Look at Nissan in Sunderland, for example, which we perhaps could have developed further and in the process spread activity around the country to replace the manufacturing we lost. We created a new car industry, but we created it with foreign investors, some of whom are interested in the British market, but a lot of whom are interested in being part of the European market. Um, So we have to accept that, and that creates a very big strategic challenge for us, which we've been very dishonest about in our national discussions. You think we've been dishonest? Well, in the sense we haven't talked at all rigorously about, well, what are we going to lose if we are not part of this EU system, and how are we going to replace it? And and I think the point we you, you pointed to the Commonwealth, and all I'm saying is that won't replace that. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Ulrich Clark got its start back in 1935, and while the world has changed a bit, it's more than just survived. From complying with the FCA and all things financy, they can also speak fluently in the language of legalese. Ori Clark was born and raised right here in the UK, and now for 20 years they've been helping others get set up and on their way. Ori Clark's door's always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. Well, it's, it's their thing with the heart and the head, isn't it? It's, it's the fact that, you know, this sort of island nature is sort of yeah. drives this sort of feeling of like, Wah. but do you think we can find, do you think we'll get pushed to do it again? Though? Being the first industrial power and the greatest naval power in the world at the beginning of a transformative economic revolution, one of the greatest in world history, put us right in the frontier of innovation in the 19th century, already by the late 19th century, the first continental superpower, America, was rivaling and surpassing us by 1900 already. Mm. And Germany was already very far in catching up. But a lot of the instincts, I think, that make the sort of the view of Britain as special and the view that we are, you know, a great power on our own, uh, able to survive anything, were formed in what is, if you look at it historically, an extraordinary period. Extraordinary in the sense, and I think it's because some, everything was so new and we were creating it here, then this new thing, in that we were the first industrial power in the world and that made a tiny island the world's greatest power. Yeah. The world's greatest Crazy, power, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah. And that lasted for a good long time. And Europe was well ahead, so that's why we our naval power was so remarkable even in the 18th century. And nobody else in the world had really sort of woken up to what was going on. But the point is, they have. 
<laughs> so, so they realized quite early in the case of the Americans and the Europeans what the Brits were doing. And they caught up. And it's because they caught up that we found winning the second... We couldn't have won the Second World War without the Yanks and the Russians, oh, I mean, right? Okay, yeah. so because the power shift had been so great. We were now dealing with continental-scale wars. And today, we've got China, which is a supercontinent. We, in future, 20, 30, 40 years, will have India. Okay, it's going to be a great part. So, going to be the biggest one and a half billion people. Very difficult for a country of sixty-eight million to match that. And America will be four hundred million, and it'll be America, and the EU will be whatever it is. So, it's just those instincts that come from our history, perfectly understandable instincts that we are on our own. We are a great power. We can survive. Those won't work. So. What we can be, and this is, as I said, where Singapore on tens makes much more sense to me than the Commonwealth thing. Okay, we're going to be a fast, mobile, adaptable trading entity moving in and out. And I, as I said, I think there are lots of things we can do on that basis as long as we're soundly managed and all the rest of it, all the other things we talked about in law and economics and so forth, we can do. What I'm not sure about is we can do enough of that well enough to provide good incomes for our entire population. So, Which could run us into social unrest. That's exactly the point. And that's why also I think Brexit happened. So we were already failed. I'm suggesting that the instincts we have derived from our astonishingly breathtakingly successful history. I mean, the, Britain is just unbelievably... Yeah. It's, I'm not talking, and you started with talking about the current situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here is this tiny island, offshore island, which created modern liberal ideas in a very significant way, democratic institutions, which have spread all over the world, representative democracy, which started here. There were others who got some of it. Then the Industrial Revolution, with all that meant, this is a country that transformed the world. And it's perfectly understandable. People are, one, very proud of it and understand that. And we developed the idea we could muddle through because it all happened without planning. Yeah. Nobody settled down in a... Now, it's not quite true because William Pitt the Elder clearly planned the Seven Years' War to, you know, to, to, to exploit it to, to become a world empire. So it's not completely unplanned. The Industrial Revolution was unplanned. The biggest thing we've ever done. So our instinct is that's the way we should do things. Well, I think the world we live in now is different. The opportunities we have are different. And the instincts we have from the past are not necessarily productive because the world is different. I'm not saying we can be completely different from we were because that's impossible for any society. But we have to be reasonably realistic of what the world is, what we can do, and how this might affect our society and economy. It's the overlaying of the emotional with the economic. You know, we're not talking about it because we don't make economic decisions. You know, we're, 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 you know, we're making decisions on sort of how we feel, you know. Well, I think that, yes, emotion is very important. Solidarity in a society and country is very important. These are emotions. Um, they're sources of strength, but they're not solutions to problems. So a political system has to, a successful one, democratic system, has to appeal to people's emotions. 
without driving them into decisions which are made purely on emotional grounds. And you can see, uh, if I'm not going to make any comparisons, but if you look back on history, you can see countries that have got into the most unbelievable problems by allowing that to happen. This is not where we are. But the... Uh, but I do think there has to be some opportunity for rational, unemotional debate about where you are, where you're going, and a willingness to consider things beyond next week. And in the recent past, I would say our politics have been really bad at that. That's made our lives now in the real world more difficult. And if we keep doing that... Well, let's be quite clear. If we keep doing that, then Britain is going to continue what's happened in the last 14 years and actually in the last 70, which is relative decline. Slow relative decline, possibly faster relative decline, and society will notice this. They will realise it. And looking at my whole of my lifetime, that's been a biggish part of it. It's this, this soundbite politics, and I mean, obviously, you 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 write in probably the only newspaper I bother to read because you know without favour and everything. But for me, well, that's why we're sitting and doing a podcast because it just seems to be the only format I'm aware of that you can have a chance to explain yourself properly. You know, and so you know, how do we make rational decisions when we're sort of you know living in these slogans? You know, you you can't very I mean, difficult, very difficult, and. Uh, the insects of the society have to be in tune with the needs of the moment. And in the 19th century, they clearly were. I think in, in the middle of the 20th century, some in some ways, yes. But the instincts of our society and the way we conduct political debate and the, the emotions and other things we bring to them do not seem to me currently in line with the objective circumstances we are in. And that makes... They're too romantic, too emotional, as we've seen in the recent experience, irrational. I mean, the truth is, as far as I can see, there was no equivalent in the 19th and early 20th centuries of a government like the one that Truss and Kwarteng ran. And that was a very revealing government because it was clearly the, what the Conservative Party's membership wanted. Yeah. And... So here we have the most successful and important political party in Britain. Its membership is remittedly small. Absolutely convinced they should launch a project which, in my view, didn't make any intellectual sense and was carried out in the most amateur way possible. I mean, that's pretty revealing of the breakdown of a political system yeah. as a functioning system. It's still legitimate. It's a break, breakdown of a party more than the system. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of the two parties, the two main parties. You're not convinced Labour would do any, any better? I think they can avoid those sorts of mistakes, so I th I'm pretty sure they will do better. Um, yeah, I say will because I expect them to win. Of course, I could be wrong. Anything can happen in politics. But the, the big point, I think, is that the Conservative Party is so divided and is so full of so many romantics of a kind that I would never have imagined yeah. in the Conservative Party of uh, various kinds, that it's no longer an effective party government. Basically, they can't agree on anything. When they did seem to agree, at least in the membership, they agreed on something crazy. That's a very difficult way to operate. You need, in a multi-party democracy, that the main parties all cohere <laughs> round a 
basically sensible thing that different values, shifts, different priorities, all that's true. But coming back to your point, you know, you want a five, 10 year idea of where you're going. If that's going to work in a multi-party democracy, there has to be a fair degree of consensus among them because otherwise you get wild swing, complete instability and nobody will invest. Uh, so the for democracy to operate, a consensus is necessary. So the big question is, what's the strategy now? And after Truss and Kwarteng, one option of that strategy, I think, is gone. And what the strategy is for Labour in a big sense and for the Conservative in the big sense is open. What is true, I think, and here I completely agree with you, that the Socialism in One Nation project of Corbyn and the economic... I take this word, this word neoliberalism in one country of trust, quanting have been revealed, I think, to be political non-starters. And I think they're both economic non-starters too. So we've removed some junk, but we haven't yet settled on a future which does, as it has to, build on our past, and that's what we've been talking about, but can't be imprisoned by it because the world is different. This is not the world of the 1980s, obviously. It's not the world of the 50s. It's not even the world of 1980. It's a different world. And one of the things it's doing is, for example, deglobalizing. And what does that mean for us? If we're all going to regional blocks, where do, does that leave us? Mm-hmm. That's what a deglobalizing world means. We're increasingly outside the European decisions. So I think... We need something quite new in the way we approach things. I've discussed some of this. Maybe a new part. You know, I feel like you you pick red or you pick blue. It's prejudice to start with. Yes, the problem is we've only had one fundamental eruption of a new party in the two-party system we created in the 19th century. And the, the only shift in that was Labour replacing the Liberals. And it did that for two reasons. Um, one, it represented a hugely powerful growing interest group in societies, the organized working class, which was an immense class which the liberals failed to capture. A great mistake, but that's another matter. Uh, and secondly, the immense impact of the First World War on traditional liberalism, uh, which split it. It split the traditional liberal party and Lloyd George ended up the most charismatic leader, ended up going with the Conservatives, which, as a result, liberalism was destroyed by the First World War. So that created a replacement. The point I'm making is to replace one of the two great parties, you need, I think, a combination of two things. You need a new social class of immense cohesion and organization. And my feeling is that the one new closed social class we genuinely have has taken over labor. Namely, it's the university educated people. And they're a rapidly growing proportion of our society. uh, And labor has been shifting over the last 20 years from a working class party, which is a declining class, but of an important one, and a lot of which has gone to support the Conservatives, a lot of always did, to being the, the party of the, the liberal, 
quote-unquote woke, I hate this term, intelligentsia. And the point about that class is it's growing dramatically because people of my generation, 5% of the population went to university. In the 20s, people in their 20s, it's close to 50. Do the maths. You can know that 30 years from now, 40 years from now, university-educated people who are disappointed in their economic position are going to be an absolutely dominant class in our society, and they will mostly vote Labour because they're, like all intellectuals, they like the idea of change. Now, that's the new class, but they're not creating a new party. The working class is clearly in decline. It's a declining proportion of the population. The old working class, the industrial working class, has, of course, been atomized. Then there's the old, rich, commercial, and really rich people who continue to be conservative. And the Conservative Party is going to be a coalition, in my view, rather like the Republicans, between very wealthy people who are predominantly and very prosperous older people who are concerned about preserving their wealth and having low taxes, and socially conservative, disgruntled people who aren't in university and that feel that their prospects are really poor. And that is a fascinating yeah, party. It's a great and so what you've got is a, a right-wing populist party which does the conservative thing, throwing in the free markets. Now, I think the conservatives do have an option, which would be really revolutionary for them, is to go for what I think of welfare conservatism. So social conservatism, which is what a lot of their voters want, but combined with real support for the welfare state that a lot of these people who are voting for them really want to be spent money on. And to do that, they have to tax their own supporters. And the trouble is, and donors, and the they don't want it, they don't want that to happen to them. But that would work electorally. I really believe that would work electorally. The party that has been most successful this in the broadly defined Western world world is not a model I want anyone to follow, which is the Polish government uh, piece, because that's basically what they... It's welfare conservatism. Free market conservatism is very difficult to sustain with this coalition, because so, as we're going to see with the Red Wall, many of them will feel, you're not, you're not doing the, what I want with the welfare state. You're not providing the social care for my grandmother. Yeah. Uh, you're not actually fixing the roads. You promised you will, but you haven't. So I think the free market um, conservative thing becomes very difficult to say, unless, as has happened with the Republicans, you go ever more right-wing. And that's frightening. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of BWB Extra, and we'll be back with a new episode next Tuesday. Until then, it's ciao.